Hello and welcome to the latest Science of Sport podcast. I'm your host Matt Solomon and today I'm delighted to be joined by Michael Corlin. So Mike is a performance coach and university lecturer. He is dual accredited in sport rehabilitation and strength and conditioning. He's also the lead performance coach for Andrew Robertson, who is a UK 60 meter indoor champion. And he's also worked with England in GB basketball and he currently consults in track and field, rugby, basketball and with the British military. So who better today to discuss how to improve sprint performance than Michael? So without further ado, it's time to welcome Mike onto the show. So Michael, welcome to the Science of Sport podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. Cheers, mate. Thank you for I'm really excited to be on. Excellent, mate. Excellent. Thank you for joining us. So can you give us a quick introduction as to who you are and what you've been up to until now? Yeah, I'll try and keep this relatively concise and I'm sure that a lot of people struggle to do this, you know, with, with their careers and stuff. Um, so I'm a athletic performance coach or performance and rehabilitation coach. Um, so I work predominantly at the moment in track and field. I have people that come to me from basketball, from the military, etc. And then kind of sound like a superhero when I say this, my day job is I'm a university lecturer and program lead on the sport rehabilitation degree at the University of Salford. And I'm part of kind of like the, the new sports uh, research group there with John McMahon, Paul Comfort, uh, Nick Ripley, etc. as well. So that's pretty cool. Um, and they're kind of the two main facets of the, the work I do. Um, so I'm a hybrid, and that's the best way to call myself. I started out in sport rehabilitation, which is akin to a lot of people think it's similar to sports therapy or sports physio. It's actually the British version of athletic training from the United States. But I always have had an interest in training and prevention is better than a cure for me. So I've done a lot of kind of strength and conditioning-esque and athletic performance-esque training as well. So I kind of sit on, you know, two sides of the fence, you know, both sides of the coin kind of thing. And depending on what role I'm doing, then I tap into the tools I need to. Absolutely. Excellent, mate. And you're, you're working with uh, a high-level sprinter. So can you take us through your, your work with him? So over the past five years, so off the back of him winning the 2017 National Indoor Championships, um, he was pretty banged up and he'd come back to Manchester, um, kind of left his training group for you know personal reasons and he needed, he had his dad coaching him, which worked for a little bit, but he needed someone to look at his rehab, his, you know, his physio as he called it and you know, his S&C. He wasn't really impressed with the physios at GB level and that's not to say that physios aren't good or anything like that as a disclaimer from from my point of view it's just he didn't really buy into what they did and didn't really like it and I think the main thing was there was a bit of a mismatch between um what the physios would do very low level threshold type exercises and then the S&Cs would do you know like say he gave an example of you know 200 kilo box squats and there wasn't much in the middle so that's how we started I started looking at his program across the year um Interestingly, he'd not done plyometrics for three, four years, but, and sprinting is predominantly a plyometric exercise. It's kind of the epitome of it. So, you know, there was a lot of kind of reinstigation of, of old ideas or best practices to help him and kind of, you know, rebuild him, so to speak. And then over the past three years, I've been his lead coach because he decided that he wanted to step away from his dad. His dad was actually kind of turning into dad on race day, and that was affecting him psychologically. So he needed a bit of a buffer. And and I stepped in and, and looked at the wider picture. You know, he didn't have a race agent at the time because his race, race agent had left him. He needed a psychologist. 
so I kind of built a team around him as well for him as well so and and now we kind of you know work in tandem so more often than not I'll send him some sessions to do he'll go and do them and then he feeds back it might be you know video feedback or something like that um and along the way we've been to quite a few national finals in the 100 meters and he's you know managed to pick up a few titles as well over the 60 meters and we've got the in three days time the national kind of british indoor championships down at birmingham at the utilita and he's going to compete against some really really fast guys over the 60 meters and hopefully get selected to go to the european championships That'd be very good, mate. Excellent. So, for for those listening who aren't particularly familiar with uh, with sprinting as a as a sport, what what do you need? What are the prerequisites in terms of the physical capacities to to sprint really fast? It's it's an interesting thing because you've got you've got different camps. There are there are people that talk about you know weightlifting and strength and you know physical components that you need to be able to withstand the forces created you know when you run. And then there's there's the kind of the, the movement camp or the technique camp or running mechanics. For me, I, I, I sit in, in the two. You, you need to be able to create shapes that allow you to move quickly. And then at the same time, you need the prerequisite physical markers in order to be able to help create those shapes. And I think the two go hand in hand. You know, um, Stu McMillan shared something this week about, you know, you wouldn't have someone deadlift three times a week, you know, with, a, with poor form. So although sprinting is a vaccine, you wouldn't have people sprinting with poor mechanics, you know, and there's been papers by uh, Chris Brammer bought one out recently on the S the mass, which is like a kind of a, a several points checker for looking at, you know, running technique in footballers and the relationship between that and hamstring injuries. So for me, you've got to be able to kind of like technically execute a model, a movement model of some kind. And then at the same time, you need to be able to hit certain kind of physical prerequisites. So, one of them might be, you know, can you, you know, kind of lift, say, X amount of body weight. And it doesn't have to be, say, you know, a full astagrass squat. It may well be like some of my guys will do, you know, two and a half times body weight, but on a half squat, for instance. And then we'll pick out certain movements, whether it's like a hip thrust, or it might be an isometric calf hold. And we're looking at, you know, whether it's yielding or overcoming, and from there, we'll build metrics based on what we see within a movement screen as well. So when I start working with someone, we'll pick out certain things and I'll do, you know, an assessment, bit of a checklist, go through bits and bobs. And then from there, that builds their program as to what they need. Because you'll get some guys that are really, really naturally quick over 20, 30 meters, but they will have, you know, quite poor active range of motion to be able to hit bigger shapes to transition into top end running speed. So after kind of, 25 to 35 meters where we're you know transitioning towards top ends and and even in some sports like you know rugby and football you still need to be able to hit a decent top end speed um for certain instances depending on the position you play and it might be that that's where you're at risk of injury as well so we can do all the nordics all day for hamstrings and stuff like that you know you can do iso loading on achilles but you've still got to dose them with the thing that they're going to have to do in the sport as well so that, that that's kind of the, the two that i sit in if we're talking about a metric for speed then for at an elite level you've got to be able to hit below 275 on a flying 30 as a as a minimum so a flying 30 is a 30 meters with a 20 meter 30 meter rolling start you get you know set up timing gates they hit that and then you're looking at that i mean 275 even then is a little bit pedestrian because really the, the kind of the, the target when we get towards race time 
is below 272, probably down below 270. Um, and if you're hitting 265 to 268, that's that's where we're talking about equating to world-class times in the 100 metres and in the 60 metres as well. And I, I wanted to ask about that. So, like, obviously you're playing with really fine margins. Those are, those yeah. are not, like, really large scales to be working on, right? So, yeah, yeah in terms of um, preparing someone to, to win a sprinting race, how much time can you shave off like how much how much time are you really realistically in in a pre-season phase looking to to shave off of a of a 60 or 100 meter time some of it's setting expectations because athletes will always come in and be like you know i want to run nine nine and six four that's about like, okay let's you know take a step back let's look at this let's look at where you are at the moment and and sometimes as well like tracking it across the year you'll kind of pick up get an idea as to what kind of shape they're in as well um, for me, a lot of the hard work gets done before Christmas. So in terms of all your physical conditioning, I have speed kind of throughout the program, throughout the year. I'm not one of these long to short model people. Um, so I, I will speed dose my guys and girls at least once or twice a week in and around the program as well. In terms of what we're looking to gain, so Andy's PB, for instance, is 6.54. Now, he's consistently this season in, in training hit below that two or three times. The difficult thing is, is it's the marry up between obviously training where it's safe. It's, you know, you've got plenty of time to warm up. You know, there's, you're not in a very, uh, you know, kind of small warm up area where there's tons of athletes and, you know, you, there's a lot of noise going on on race day. So on race day, it's a little bit different. So you're looking at, okay, well, what can we, you know, kind of, respectively look to shave off last season he ran a 658 and he ran that consistently and and the consistency for me is a big thing because it ties into health you know athletes are always banged up in any sport what you're trying to do is optimize their health as much as possible so that it doesn't start to chip away at their psyche you know their confidence that kind of thing and then from there you're just trying to get them as close as possible to that because if they if they do pb you'll more than likely find that they will run a little bit slower, slower, you know, in subsequent races because you're, you're basically breaking a boundary and you're stressing the system beyond what it was potentially capable of previously. So it's so, so fine. And, and for us, like in track, you, people will go, he only ran like a, you know, a hundredth of a second quicker. And in track, you're like, wow, this is amazing. This is what we're looking for. So if he runs a 6.53, it's still a personal best, but it's a personal best of literally six inches in terms of, you know, check, like difference in chest or something like that. You know, a tenth of a second, you'd say, is about a meter, give or take. So, so again, they're, they're so fine, so, so fine. And it all depends on the day, you know, the track, the competition, how the athlete feels. So we tend to taper down. So we've, we've tapered right the way down. He's going to do a pre-lift, as he likes to call it, on Thursday, Friday, travel down, you know, Saturday morning super long warm-up lots of chilling out and then go through the three rounds and go from there and we've got we've nailed that kind of approach over the last four or five years now as well so but yeah it's 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 so fine that people outside of it don't don't get it and i had this conversation with one of my colleagues at uni where he was talking about an effectual change in runners and it was like again it was a couple of hundreds of a second in footballers and my counter argument to that was, but that's the difference between getting to the ball and heading it and not. So that's like, you know, Champions League final, 
or whatever it is, or getting get you know getting to that last ditch tackle, they're the differences we're talking about. But he just didn't really get it because the margin was so small. Which is understandable as well, right? If you're not if you're not used to those those fine margins, then all of a sudden you're like, yeah, well, maybe maybe yeah. on another day uh, they do it slower or faster. Yeah, of course. Yeah. But if you can consistently make that make that change, then uh, fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you alluded to it earlier that before Christmas that you were doing different stuff. So how does the the periodization look like when you're working towards that? You mentioned European Championships. So let's say you're you're aiming to win the European Championships, that'd be nice. Um, how do you how do you periodize throughout a season towards that? So come the end of, come the end of the summer season, I will have a sit down and I might throw a film on in the background or something like that, and and basically plan out the the next year, looking at you know dates for both indoor championships and outdoor championships, and and I, I look at it and go, okay, well. We need X amount of recovery time before. We need X amount of recovery time afterwards. And then between that, I then try and keep it as simple as possible um, in terms of my my kind of, you know, overall kind of peaking and troughing with regards to periodization. And then I look at the amount of volume that we need to do across these, you know, these blocks. And then from there, I kind of, you know, segment them down into, you know, weeks, days, times, etc. So, we will start typically, he'll have a three-week break in September. We'll start kind of roughly in October, something like that. And and he'll still keep fit during that time over that three-week kind of break that he has. And he'll, you know, go to the gym, do some yoga, etc., and go from there. And from there, we'll go really, really hard up until probably just before Christmas. And then we'll taper down for Christmas I'll, I'll, this year I gave him three days off at Christmas because just to spend time with family, girlfriend, that kind of thing. So the big, big bulk of his speed endurance work and lifting and kind of speed tolerance work, that I call it, gets done before Christmas. And that's that's blended with some technical stuff as well. Then from Christmas onwards, that's where we kind of semi-taper right the way down and decrease decrease the amount of volume that we're doing but keep the intensity really super high as well. So with the lifting that we'll do, he will do, you know, Olympic derivatives before Christmas. He'll do, you know, really, really super heavy half squats, step ups, split squats, uh, hip thrusts, etc. After Christmas, we will still do a little bit of that, but we'll then actually have a lot more isometric training going on as well. And he will call it activation and it's targeting you know, specific muscle groups and muscle sets, whether that's hamstrings, glutes, you know, hip abductors, adductors, or whatever it is. Um, just because the tax is different as well. Um, one of the things that is quite difficult is as he's getting older, is managing the niggles. So, and that's, that's really, really important. That's where we kind of have a play around with some of this periodization as well. Um, I'm not a fan of him relying on massage as much. But again, him, for him mentally, just getting that one-to-one, lying on the couch, getting a flush, as he calls it, that's a preference. But oh, what was good for us during COVID, he was doing yoga every day, which essentially is you know, isometric movements held for you know, in, in positions of you know, tension. And you know, a lot of people just call it stretching, but it's not. It's a lot more kind of complex than that. And we found that was a really, really good recovery tool for him to utilize. And what, so what we do is he do a training in the morning, then have a nap in the afternoon and then go to, you know, do his yoga in the evening. 
so we'd kind of even periodize the day as well and each day would be different so throughout the week we'd start with a speed day on a Monday kind of a power lifting session and plyometrics on a Tuesday we'd then have a kind of a long long kind of running session so say you know 300s or 200 and 300 pyramids or split fours on a Wednesday super heavy gym as we call it on a, on a Thursday and then there'd be kind of a, a mixed methods on a Friday and then Saturday we do either hill runs so up and down hill runs or plyos depending on how the weather was as well and then Sunday would be kind of a, like a day of rest but you still do something whether it was core or yoga things like that so I'll take the whole program you know whack it in a, an excel spreadsheet put every single session down that we're potentially going to do and then from there you whittle it right the way down to either even within the, within the day and the beauty of that is it takes the stress away he feels like he's got a plan now we will ad lib and we will always have a plan b and uh, there's been times where we've been kicked off a track because it's been booked and then three people have used the track and we've been like guys come on he's an international athlete can we just use the back lane no sorry so we've then we've then had to go to the local park and do hill runs or you know we've we found a really really nice flat you know area of concrete in a car park and done you know some really really aggressive plyos or something like that so we have that plan in place which is great for him it takes that stress away but there will be times where you know it might be that he'll whatsapp me and say i can't get to the gym today you know or you know there's only this kit at the gym what can i do so we will kind of ad lib based around that and and that gym work that you mentioned, um, what does that look like? You met, you you've gone through a few exercises, mm-hmm. but th- does that also change with respect to the the season? Yeah, yeah. So again, he he's got his own little routine in his in his pre gym, as he calls it. You know, um, so it'll use you usually be um, a heavy half lift of some kind, then a and it kind of looks a little bit like French contrast training. It'll be a heavy half lift of some kind. Then usually like say a high pull at like 70, 80%. So with some velocity, then there'll be, you know, a little bit of plyometrics in there and then there'll be some specific kind of activation exercises. So it's kind of like a hybrid of, um, you know, different things. And that'll be his kind of his pre-gym usually 48 hours before we played around and sometimes done it 24 hours. He just feels there's a bit, little bit of a lag. So usually it's 36 to 48 hours before is kind of the sweet spot for him specifically. Um, Early on in winter, it's just super heavy. We're just looking at force and we're looking at, you know, horizontal and vertical force development and, you know, trying to basically get him back up there. He has PB'd more often than not around 300 can of hip thrust, which isn't bad for a, you know, 68 kilo sprinter. And then, you know, we've, we've got him upwards of kind of 220 on a rack squat for four reps as long as he gets to the right position because the odd time he might tweak his back, you know, if he kind of sets in the wrong position and stuff like that. So, so again, they're things that we have to be wary of. Um, as the season goes on, we start to bias more towards single leg training as well. So that's where we'll introduce things like step ups and split squats, just because, again, the bias is the fact that we're looking at separating the limbs out. Sprinting is, you know, very, li- you know, single limb based. And the volume of gym lifting will decrease and the volume of resisted running using an exogeny and plyometrics and med ball throws and things like that will increase again dovetailing at christmas and then continuing after christmas so we will still have heavy lifting in but it won't be as regular just because at that point we're really really trying to emphasize that the kind of the speed component 
post Christmas in the build up to the, the, the indoors because you only get about six weeks after Christmas before the indoor championships. And that, that strength loss is then just strength maintenance effectively, making sure that you don't lose what you've built up uh, before Christmas. Yeah, and a lot of the time it'll be transference type stuff. So we'll use the exogeny and and he'll do two or three kind of really, really heavy kind of marches over 30 metres and then we'll drop the weight right down and he'll do two or three runs with a, say, 10 or 20% resistance over 30 metres as part of his warm-up as well. So he's, he's always kind of there with the strength and, and what we'll do, if we notice a bit of a drop-off in his strength, then we will add in another session you know, just to kind of remind his body. And it won't be every week. It might be every other week or something like that. And that's something that's a little bit fluid because we're both appreciative of the fact. And, and I don't sit in the strength camp as such because I know, for me, I've, I've met sprinters who can't lift for toffee and are absolute lightning, you know, on the track or on the football field. So for this particular athlete, it is something that helps keep him healthy. And that, for me, is fundamental. Absolutely excellent. And when, when it comes to then integrating that with the technical coaching, how does that look? Because obviously you're in a unique situation if you're, if you're kind of coaching everything. Um, how do you combine that physical side, which obviously super interesting, uh, really important to, to have those physical characteristics, and the technical coaching, which is, I think, what you mentioned earlier is, is shapes, right? So how do, you, how do you combine those two things to make it effective? So... It's, it's all about having a theme for the session and, ma- and making that really, really clear. But at the same time, like, so if it's a, if it's a lifting session and for whatever reason I'm not there, then, you know, I'll say to him, I, I need to see some videos because although obviously the, the F force is really, really important to us and, you know, whether it's horizontal or vertical, I still want to make sure that he's, he's lifting the right kind of way, you know, from the right kind of area. And he's not, for whatever reason, creating a hotspot that then leads to a niggle that then becomes a problem later on. On the track, again, it's all about the theme. So, you know, today we're going to do this. But every single session pretty much has a technical aspect to it. So, for instance, if we're doing, say, a split 400-meter session or a you know a 300-meter session and he's got to run the 300 in under 38 seconds, which is brutal my coaching point to him will be over the last 80 meters this is where i want you to think about you know are you relaxing at the shoulders you know are you are you maintaining a a good hip height and hip height is a bit controversial um on social media but the idea is is that we're you know i'm not going to say to him dissociate your pelvis because that's (laughs) that's technical jargon for me it's not useful for him so but he understands that hip height is all about you know keeping keeping it nice and high without collapsing and falling forwards. And then at the same time, you know, what's he doing at the knee? So, you know, where is his knees? And it's just getting into key into it a little bit because having been a track sprinter myself years, years ago, doing, doing anything above the distance that you do is horrific. And, you know, whether you're an 800 meter runner, 400 or whatever, doing threes, fours, fives, they're, they're awful. The lactate just saps everything out of you. So for him, he is known for his start. And what, what we've tried to do is build in this kind of this back end, this kind of, you know, speed tolerance after 60 meters to make him competitive over the 100. So if he's able to, you know, to maintain these kind of three or four key coaching points under fatigue during a 300, then we've got a greater tra- chance once we bring that kind of distance down to be able to effectively do that during a technical session at a higher speed. 
Absolutely excellent, mate. So I think that was really interesting. Um, I think it's really nice to see how you build up from like what, what the sport needs and then look at how you periodize that throughout a year and eventually how you combine that all together. Um, where can people find some more information about you and what you're doing? Um, I'm really active on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm on Instagram, but again, I'm, I'm not great on Instagram to be honest. Um, I just find LinkedIn's a really, really good platform for us as professionals just because it's regulated, you know, any inappropriate actions or anything like that. Um, I'm on Twitter. I exist on Twitter, but I'm, I'm not, I'm seldom active on Twitter. Um, but again, so LinkedIn's the best place to find me as well. Um, and if anybody does want to get in touch, they can always drop me an email. So, you know, happy for you to put my email out there if need be, if they, they want to ask any questions, you know, I, I'm currently building a research theme um, towards a PhD with the help of, you know, Paul Comfort and John McMahon and people like that, um, looking at sprinting and, you know, things like that, mechanics. And and if, it, you know, if we can solve the hamstring injury problem and the calf injury problem and stuff like that. Uh, absolutely excellent, mate. So massive thanks for your time and effort today. I really appreciate it and uh, look forward to speaking again soon. Sounds great, mate. Thank you very much. Cheers, buddy. Bye. And that's it. Once again, massive thanks to Michael for all of his hard work on today's podcast. I really appreciate it. I'm sure you do at home too. Before you leave, I'd like to put you in the direction of the Science of Sport Coach Academy. And the Coach Academy is an overgrown library of online sports science courses, which are broken down into bite-sized chunks, which means you can fit it in and around your busy coaching schedule. Next to that, every time you complete a course, you'll also get a certificate of completion to prove your ongoing education. So if you're interested in getting into the Coach Academy, you can get in there completely for free using the link in the show notes in just a few seconds time. And of course, if you have enjoyed today's podcast, it'd be fantastic if you could recommend us to a coach, a colleague, an athlete, or a friend. That means that we can keep bringing the best possible guests and the best possible content. And that's it. Once again, a massive thanks from me. I'm Matt Solomon for Science of Sport, and I'll speak to you next week.